From Sarasota Memorial, this is HealthCast. A healthy dose of information from experts you can trust. Hi, everyone. Welcome to HealthCast. I'm Allison Warren. In light of the news surrounding COVID-19 locally, nationally, and internationally, we're changing up HealthCast a little bit to focus on the need-to-know information about this pandemic. Joining me today is Dr. Manuel Gordillo, an infectious disease specialist and the medical director of infection prevention and control at Sarasota Memorial Hospital. Dr. Gordillo, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So Dr. Gordillo, you guided the care of COVID patients in our area and helped prepare the emergency response at SMH from the very start of this crisis, even before the crisis. So can you start by telling us how you and the team went about addressing the virus before it even made its way to our community? Oh, yes. So in epidemiology, we're always looking for epidemics that have the potential to become a pandemic anywhere in the world. So we're doing this all the time, and we've had a lot of experience with this just this century. We started in 2002 with the first SARS, which was a coronavirus. Subsequently, in 2009, we have H1N1 influenza that started in Mexico. Then subsequently had MERS, another coronavirus that started in the Middle East. Then we had the 2014-2015 Ebola that started in West Africa. Uh, more recently, Zika virus in Brazil. And so we're constantly on the look for this type of things. As a matter of fact, uh, one interesting uh, piece is that in December, at the beginning of December, we got invited by uh, a, a group of scientists from MIT and Harvard that came to Sarasota Military Academy to do an exercise on a simulation of a pandemic. And they had created a virus that turned out to be coronavirus for the, uh, for the kids in the school to discover what it was. Uh, and during this, uh, actually turned out to be very uh, provocative in a way because the virus that they have created was a mutated MERS virus that uh, was highly transmissible. So just uh, for serendipity, we were already practicing some of this uh, pandemic uh, situations in the month of December. So l- later on, three weeks later, we started hearing about an outbreak of pneumonia in China. So we immediately, our radars, uh, focus on that area of the world, and we started following what's happening there. You know, an uh, in, in epidemic of pneumonia anywhere in the world is of a lot of interest to us. We started watching that, and, and then, as you know, it evolved as the big outbreak that happened in the province of Hubei in China, in Wuhan. And by January the 20th, we already had the first case in the United States in the state of Washington. So that, re- we had been talking within our group in infection prevention and control and following carefully this. When the first case occurred, that's when we decided that we had to call um, the rest of the hospital to prepare for this and, and initiate our more serious work for this. And then later on, uh, the next month is when we started seeing the first case. I happened to be uh, one of the doctors that saw that first case. And the interesting part was that 
unlike most other cases that had occurred in the United States, this was only the second one that did not have a travel history. So that immediately gave us the signal that this case was already, uh, that this virus was already um, transmitting itself within the state of Florida. So that even raised the alarm much higher and we started doing more uh, a wider approach to this. We had to implement a lot of protocols to detect the virus and, and go from there. Now, you actually diagnosed that first case. What has it been like in the hospital setting since? Because this has been a rapidly evolving, rapidly changing circumstance, set of circumstances. Oh, extremely rapid. You know, uh, we, 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 and that's a problem with viruses is that nowadays they can travel so fast throughout the world in no time it was, had spread probably all the continents. I think the only uh, continent that initially was not affected was Antarctica, but in no time it was spread through, throughout all the continents and in, in most countries. So when, when we knew that it was in, 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 in Florida, we had to start doing all the things that we have been preparing for but uh, basically, initially with the hospital, we needed to have protocols to identify cases uh, and isolate them. Those are the keys because we didn't identify cases, we didn't isolate well, there was going to be a rapid spread in hospitals. And in hospitals, when there's rapid spread, they become amplifiers of the epidemic. And this is something that we, we did not want for our community, did not want for our hospital. How has your view of this virus changed from the time you first started hearing about it, as you were talking about in, in Wuhan and in China, and then it came here, and now we've seen that community spread? How has your view of the virus changed? Well, the, our, our worst nightmares turn out to be reality and true. You know, when we started seeing what was happening uh, at the end of December, early January, in China, we thought, wow, this is something different. Uh, but uh, we have seen it before. Sometimes uh, we, that happened in SARS, you know, cases were uh, dramatic, they were causing a lot of mortality, but then for, uh, for a number of reasons, the, the, the pandemic did not progress, you know, for seasonal reasons, because uh, there was some preparedness wherever it was attacking. And, the characteristics of the virus were such that we're able to be controlled. This virus, however, had turned out to have very, uh, very difficult to control features. Uh, one of the things that we found later is that transmission can occur before the patient shows symptoms, and it's highly transmissible at the time, especially right before the patients start displaying symptoms, they can be very transmissible. So that one, one of the things that um, make it very transmissible and contagious and difficult to, to detect. Uh, therefore, uh, we, uh, we started uh, with that not in our equation, uh, but as uh, things progressed, we started learning about those things, and then we started learning about the wide manifestations from a clinical point of view. 
Uh, we thought that this was a respiratory virus, but then we started finding out that it not only affects the respiratory tract, but the, it has a lot of vascular issues and cardiovascular. And then as things go along, just about every organ in the body gets, uh, gets uh, compromised by this virus and results, at least in the cases that we see in the hospital, which are, of course, the more, more severe cases, probably not the majority of the cases, and and uh, but this gave us an an idea and a glimpse of the severity of illness that this virus can cause. Now, there's been a lot of discussion as of late about testing. Uh, we've heard about antibody testing, antigen testing, questions surrounding the accuracy of certain tests that are available. Can you just? tell us a little bit more about the tests that are more readily available in our state and in our region, and what do people being tested need to know? So there's, uh, in general, there's two tests that are available now. The, uh, the, the, the molecular testing that detects the molecule of the virus, which in this case is an RNA, uh, and those sometimes uh, people call them the PCRs for polymerase chain reaction, and generally those are obtained from the nasopharynx, so they need to get a swab um, through the nose to the pharynx. Those are the most uh, reliable tests that tell us if you are harboring the test in your body, in this case, the nasopharynx. That's the most commonly done test. Um, sometimes uh, not as good as this one, at least for now, they can do the oropharyngeal test and sometimes the nose. In the future, we're probably gonna have other, other places we can sample, specifically saliva seems to be one that uh, in, in hands of some investigators seem to be a, uh, an easy place to, um, to obtain a sample because obtaining a sample from the nasopharynx is still technically challenging and, uh, and it's lo logistically demanding. Uh, that's for the PCR test. It's very accurate. It's a molecular test. However, uh, it's, it's is difficult, it's expensive. Uh, there's a lot of logistical challenges in obtaining that. Uh, and also, there's some issue with the throughput, the amount of testing that we can do. You know, uh, when we're talking about hospitals, yes, we can handle hospitals. You know, over time, we've been increasing our capacity to test in hospital. But when it comes to the needs of the community at large, then we're talking about much larger numbers and that becomes difficult and that's where we need to work on increasing, decreasing the logistical barriers, increasing the throughput. Now there are, there's another kind of test that, it, that has become um, very um, much in the news lately, which is the serology, the blood test, so to speak. That detects antibodies against the virus, and there's a couple of antibodies that is most, most commonly detected, something called IgM, which is an acute phase, and then IgG, which comes a little later, but it persists for longer. So this is uh, basically the, the memory uh, that our body, our immune system does uh, uh, when they see a virus. For instance, uh, this is what we normally do to diagnose Measles, who has been 
exposed to measles and those type of things. Uh, now, this test has some promise for some things, but uh, the problem right now is that there's not that many people infected in populations. Let's say Sarasota, for example. I, ex I estimate there's two, three percent of the entire population has been infected. That means still 98, 97 percent of the population has not been infected. So if you start testing people that are mostly negative, a positive test will give you a lot of false positives just because the population tested has a very low prevalence of that. You mentioned the antigen test. You know, that has been... Uh, talked about as well, but we didn't have a test until this last weekend where the FDA has approved the first antigen test. We don't know the characteristics of the, of the test. It, in, in general, if we look at all respiratory viruses, antigen tests are not as good as, let's say, a PCR test, but they're easier to perform. Usually they, it's a no-swab uh, and it, in, in places where we don't have testing, that may be something that can come to our rescue because it will be, be an easy test to do and it may be more easily available. I want to talk fact versus fiction right now. Uh, there's been a lot of misinformation spread because this has been that rapidly evolving situation. Some misinformation has been spread in within good, accurate information online, on social media. What are the most concerning things you see being spread and, and what do you wish people really knew? Well, there's, there's two general uh, problematic areas that, uh, where, that are very ripe for misinformation. One is um, s treatments that are completely ineffective. You know, there's, um, we have for this particular virus, we really don't have a lot of treatments that are proven. Just recently, the remdesivir study has been released. Uh, it is a beginning. It seems to be effective, uh, but still early days. Uh, the drug is not widely available. You know, the, man, the, the drug, the Gilead, the company that makes it, uh, has donated all the 160,000 vials or, or doses of this that they had to the government, and the government is distributing to hospitals uh, as the need arises. But that's the only proven case uh, therapy that we have. So there's all kinds of treatments that are coming down the pike that may or may not be effective, but uh, especially online uh, in social media or even sometimes in the regular press, there, there is a push for some, some drugs uh, or forms of therapy that are definitely not effective and can be dangerous. That's one area. The other one is the conspiracy theories. And the conspiracy theories have always existed. You know, even probably you go to the Black Death, you know, people probably was, there were talking about the Black Death in, in, in the conspiracy uh, context. And every time we have a, con a pandemic, there is conspiracy theories. The, I think what it has changed is now uh, how this can be amplified and disseminated. It's so much easier to do it. And then we are starting to see more sophistication, so to speak, in the way these are presented. You know, we're, we're getting professionals and doing videos and those type of things. And as you said, you 
you know, because this is a new virus, because scientists don't necessarily know the answer to all the questions. That's when conspiracy theorists, they, they like to uh, get into it and try to explain something that is difficult to explain in a way that sounds rational to most people, but, uh, but these are generally um, areas where we have to um, intervene in the sense that we need to try to um, have always science prevail you know, I, and this is a difficult issue. It is for me, and I'm sure for folks like you in the media, it is also difficult to deal with. Uh, and that's something that we're going to have to learn. It's a, it's a work in progress. So states are now beginning to reopen. Even here in Florida, we've started to reopen the phased reopening. But people always ask, when can life go back to normal? Is it really possible we're ever going to fully go back to normal? Or is there going to be a new normal post-COVID-19? We're not going back to normal until we have a vaccine or until we the population develops herd immunity, meaning when the virus can no longer keep infecting people because most of the population has become immune. So that's not going to happen until that time you know now how do we manage that is going to be important too because uh, the virus has not changed the virus doesn't mutate well it mutates but it has minor mutations that are not important humans gen, gen, gene composition hasn't changed there our immune system hasn't changed in a small time, period of time yes there may be some seasonality to some of the uh, the the uh, Every virus that we produces respiratory infections tend to have some seasonality. In certain seasons, it is more active than others. But uh, we have seen this virus in the southern hemisphere where it's hot, seen it in the northern hemisphere where it's hot, hot uh, cold. There's a variety of humidities where it has thrived. So I don't think that's going to change a whole lot. So we really have to be very careful, and I don't think it's going to change uh, much until we either have the vaccine or we develop herd immunity. What has COVID-19 taught infectious disease experts like yourself, and how do you expect it to change the study of viruses and pandemics in the future? So much. You know, I think that the key is that we, in, in a, pan, a virus, a pandemic virus anywhere, uh, it, it has to be followed and we need to pay attention you know not because they are in remote places of the world we can have to say well it doesn't affect us because it can affect us either because of the 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 uh, the way the world is today we are so interconnected and we can move around the world very fast these viruses especially that are transmissible they will move around and this this influenza does it every year you know seasonal influenza and viruses like this coronaviruses and many others that uh, we don't even pay much attention because we're so used to this all those parinfluenza respiratory syncytial viruses they go through the world every year it's just that this is a new one our bodies our immune systems are not used to it and uh, we were going to be dealing with this for a while until we have either vaccine or or, or, or immunity but the viruses are need to be attacked at where wherever they're happening you know in 
Unfortunately, the, this tends to be happening in the wild. For instance, this is a bad virus and it happened to be in China, but there are other other viruses out there like influenza, which uh, can be um, living in birds and we need to study the bird influenzas and how those can be jumping into humans. Um, but then we need to start there. You know, we need to understand what those viruses are doing there. Are they mutating? Are they becoming adapted to humans? And those type of things that we need to learn. Obviously, we don't have the tools to do those kind of studies. They're difficult to do. And generally, the world is not prepared to start doing that. But in the future, we'll have to do that because that's the only way to detect and intervene uh, if we're going to be successful. Dr. Manuel Gordillo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So thank you everyone who's joined us for this important episode of HealthCast. For more information about COVID-19, visit smh.com COVID-19 to get the latest news from Sarasota Memorial Hospital. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, please visit smh.com. Follow us on your favorite social media network.